Hey, if you would stay standing with me, and we will, we will read our passage from Mark chapter 1 and verse 14 and 15. Now, after John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have a seat. These words, repent and believe, are amongst the first that Jesus speaks in his public ministry, according to the Gospel of Mark. And I know that the word repent can have a a somber or morose connotation, as though someone somewhere who's very angry is shaking their fist as they say it. And while the Bible is certainly serious about the topic of repentance, I wonder if we should view it primarily as a word of liberation rather than a word of guilt or shame or condemnation. Repentance certainly is part of the initiation into the Christian life, but it's also an integral part of preservation within the Christian life. It's one of the key means by which we actually incorporate the grace of God into our lives. So repentance here is a command from God, but it's also a gift from God. As I reflected at the end of last year about resolutions and goals for 2019, I asked the Lord, God, what would you have me give my hand to this year? What should I be giving my energy and time to in 2019? And one of the things I sensed him say to me was, Christian, I want you to live in a more regular rhythm of repentance, in a more regular rhythm of repentance. And what what I realized upon reflection is that I often presume upon the grace of God rather than actively living into the grace of God. Perhaps the way that A child will sometimes sit down to a dinner table and begin greedily eating before saying a single word of thanks or stopping to reflect on the fact that someone has prepared a hot meal for them. Now, if you're new to church, maybe you're exploring the Christian faith, you came with a friend, maybe repentance is not a word that you're familiar with. Maybe you've heard it, it's not part of your vocabulary. Repentance, as the Bible uses it, is a pretty straightforward word. And it really just means to change our minds so fundamentally that it changes our direction, to change our thinking such that it actually changes our trajectory. Romans 12, 2, for instance, is a pretty well-known verse in the New Testament, and it says, Do not be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may test and approve the will of God, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. That, That verse doesn't mention repentance, but it explains repentance. That's a picture of repentance. So it's saying, don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world. That is, don't walk in step with the world. The direction that the world and the culture and your instincts are taking you, don't go that way. Rather, be transformed. Change your direction. How? By the renewing of your mind. To change your thinking so significantly that it changes your direction. When I was a high school senior, it was probably the spring of my senior year, and I, I got together with a friend, and we took a road trip to Indiana. So from Dallas to Indiana to visit the school. From Dallas to Indiana, you're going to drive directly northeast. And then, predictably, coming back, you're going to go directly southwest. Now, as we, as we, we drove back, it, I, it was, we were in my truck, and I had driven up. But I said to the friend, hey, I'm feeling kind of tired. Would you mind getting the driver's seat, and I'm going to take a nap? And so we switched, and I nodded off. And then I woke up sometime later as we were passing a sign that said, welcome to Springfield. 
Now, I know that here in the great nation of Texas, we don't care about the map north of the Red River. But if you were to look at the map of the Midwest, you would see that Springfield, Missouri is not exactly between Indiana and Dallas. Now, it's not terribly out of the way, but it's a detour. And I had family in Springfield, Missouri, and I thought, well, that's a nice town. We'll stop and get something to eat. Uh, no problem. But then it, it dawned on me as I was kind of coming out of my, my slumber and stupor that the sign, Welcome to Springfield, had an outline around it in the shape of Illinois. And I thought, that's strange. And then it dawned on me, we weren't headed to Springfield, Missouri. We were headed to Springfield, Illinois. Now, again, I recognize you probably don't have the map memorized there, but Springfield, Missouri is a slight detour west out of the way, maybe a 30-minute cost. Springfield, Illinois is not exactly the opposite direction of where we were supposed to be going. And so I looked over at my friend and I said, hey, where are we headed? And her face was really nervous and her lips started quivering and her eyes welled up with tears and she said, I don't know. <laughs> and I, this was before, you know, cell phones or GPS or anything. And so I said, well, maybe this would be a good time to switch back. And so she got in the passenger seat, I got in the driver's seat. We got back on course. Now that was just a mistake, right? Not, not sin. And so it didn't require biblical repentance, but it's a picture of repentance. We had to change what we were thinking about, <laughs> change what we were thinking such that it actually redirected our course. Now, I, I will say also, um, that was senior high school. A few months later, I would begin dating a beautiful young woman who would later become my wife. I wasn't dating her yet, but I was kind of beginning to pursue her. The girl in the car was not my wife, so, or, or my girlfriend, or was not that same girl. And so one thing I did learn was when you're pursuing one girl, it's not a great look to ask a different girl to go on a road trip out of state. And so I did actually learn about repentance a little bit, but it was kind of a different, <laughs> like a different thing. But it, it, it all worked out fine. Listen, listen to what, um, what R.C. Sproul says about sin. He says, sin is treason against a perfectly pure sovereign. It's an act of supreme ingratitude toward the one to whom we owe everything, to the one who's given us life itself. Have you ever considered the deeper implications of the slightest sin, of the most minute peccadillo? What are we saying to our creator when we disobey him? Even at the slightest point, we're saying no. To the righteousness of God. We're saying, God, your law is not good. My judgment is better than yours, and your authority does not apply to me. That's what we're saying, even with the slightest sin. So in short, when I, when I presume upon God's grace, I minimize my sin, and that leaves me ultimately unrepentant, which means that I'm treating my treason as though it was a mere trifle. And I just wonder, do you is there treason in your life that you're treating as though it's just a mere trifle, hardly worth mentioning? You can just presume upon the grace of God. Without knowing everyone here, I feel confident that I'm not completely alone um, because the Christian church possesses a really rich tradition and history of repentance, but I think we have kind of a poverty of practice modernly. And we're really fortunate that Jeff leads us in the Lord's Prayer each week because the Lord's Prayer contains an element of repentance that we get to do every week. But for some of us, it might be the only regular pattern of repentance we have in our life. Now, for context and by comparison, if you look at Jewish congregations, they're going to get together at least once a year at Yom Kippur, and they're going to, they're going to engage in what's called the Vidu, and it's a, it's a congregational confession. And as they confess together, they're just going to 
pound their chest. As they stand and recite confession together, they're thumping their chest. It's not meant to be self-flagellating. It's not meant to be punishing yourself. It's meant to be grounding, a reminder that this sin is real. It's material. It has impact on my life. And it's real treason against my real God, not just some ethereal concept. And then they would engage in what's called the Ashem Nu, which is a, they take the Hebrew alphabet as an acrostic and then they recite sin according to each letter in the alphabet, just item by item, confessing that perhaps individually someone's not guilty of that sin, but recognizing that collectively the community is guilty. And so they confess together. That's a rich tradition of repentance. In the Catholic Church, you know that they've got the communion booth, right? So at least yearly and more commonly, you know, weekly or monthly, Folks are going into this communion booth where they'll sit by a partition and confess specific enumerated sins to a priest. Now, certainly reasonable people can disagree about the health uh, of certain aspects of that and the formality around that. But I think we can certainly all appreciate that as a rhythm in life, that kind of repentance, that rhythm of repentance is helpful and healthy. Uh, in, in more mainstream Protestant traditions, Anglican church and Episcopal church, they use the Book of Common Prayer. And in that Book of Common Prayer, they've got congressional uh, confession that they would use each week in their liturgy. So as they get together to worship, gathered like this, they would recite confessions together. That's a healthy rhythm of repentance. And in our freer traditions of kind of evangelical church, a lot of times we, we resist that stuff. We put that stuff aside because it's overly rigid, overly formalistic. Um, you know, it, it's, it's sort of mere emotion. It's, it's not from the heart. Sometimes it can be viewed that way, and so we kind of throw out the baby with the bathwater, but these are helpful rhythms for our life. So we're going to talk about repentance, and today is going to be part one of a two-part deal. So today we're going to talk about really the heart of repentance, and then next month we'll come back to it, and we'll talk about some specific patterns and practices that we can incorporate in our lives to press into more rhythmic repentance. And I'm hopeful that this will be equally relevant for you today, whether you are coming into church for the first time and you've never heard the word repentance before today, or if you've been in church for decades and following Jesus for as long as you can remember. Because the Bible makes clear for us that repentance is essential. It's essential for the Christian life, both for entering into it initially and also for persevering in it perpetually. When we first earnestly repent of our sin before God and we trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sin, we experience what the Bible calls, calls justification. That is to say that though we are guilty of sin, we are declared permanently righteous because of the work of Christ on our behalf. Now, once we make that confession, it's not as though we're dropping in and out of justification. It's not as though we're dropping in and out of forgiveness before God. Rather, that is once for all and permanent. But as we repent thereafter, it's not an occasion for new justification, but it is an occasion for renewed application of our justification. So as we look at repentance, we're going to look at Psalm 51. This is probably the most well-known uh, passage in the Bible on the topic of repentance. Here the king David has committed egregious, horrific sin. He's committed an act of uh, sexual violence against a woman named Bathsheba. He's murdered her husband, and now the prophet Nathan has been sent by God to confront David. And after he's confronted by Nathan, David's heart is broken by God, and in his repentance, he pins this psalm. And as we look at it, we're going to see first that repentance is preceded by God's mercy. 
Repentance is always preceded by God's mercy. That is, God's mercy comes before repentance. Look at the passage, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Now, it's important to note that repentance is preceded by God's mercy because we often think that God's mercy is predicated upon our repentance. But it's not repentance in our lives that brings about God's love for us. Rather, it's God's love in our lives that brings about our repentance. God is the first mover in his mercy. Richard Foster wrote The Celebration of Discipline, a great book to add to your reading list if you haven't read it. And in his chapter on confession, he says that unless God gives the grace, no genuine confession can even be made. Romans 2.4 points out it's, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. God's kindness is what leads us to repentance. Even in the passage here with David, we see God's mercy at work even before he pens the psalm, even before he repents, because David, upon his sin, was actually initially recalcitrant. He was unfazed. He was unmoved. He was uncaring about his sin and the result of it. It wasn't until God sent the prophet Nathan to share a word from God and then God broke David's heart with that word. So it's God's mercy active in David's life that even led to his repentance. Titus 3 says the same thing. Look at verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, you see that loving kindness of God. That's Romans 2.4. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. In other words, not because of our repentance. Not because of any religious ritual or prayer that we said or good intention that we had. Or any, any remedy that we engaged upon. But rather, but rather according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Regeneration comes before renewal. Do you see that in the passage? Regeneration is the word the Bible uses to talk about the birth of new life within us. When we are made new creations, when the spark of new life is brought about by the Spirit of God working in power in our hearts to make us new creations, we are regenerates, made, brought from, from death to life. And regeneration comes before renewal. Our rebirth comes before our repentance. If you've ever undertaken any genuine repentance in your life, that's evidence of God's grace at work already in you. And it's important to recognize God's sovereignty in our salvation, to acknowledge that he was the first mover towards us, not the other way around. And that's why 1 John 4 says, In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God's the pursuer. God's the first mover. It's God's mercy that precedes our repentance. John 11, you read the account of, of Jesus and Lazarus. So Martha runs to Jesus and she's totally distraught. And she says, Jesus, my brother, Lazarus is dead. And Jesus weeps and he's, he's moved by this. And he's, he's joining her in her sadness. And he goes to the tomb where Lazarus has been lying dead for multiple days. In fact, the passage said he's been dead so long that an odor has begun to arise because of the decay of the body. And Jesus says, I want you to, to move the stone away. And then he calls in and he says, Lazarus, come out. And in an amazing miracle of God, Lazarus, who was lying dead, rises and walks out with his grave clothes hanging off of him to the astonishment of everyone around. 
Now, when we read that passage, we don't look at Lazarus and go, wow, what an act of the will, Lazarus. I mean, what fortitude to overcome death. Lazarus didn't rise. Lazarus was raised by the power of God working upon him. And so with us, when we are dead in our sin, we don't rise to repent. We are raised by God's mercy to repent. If we miss that, our repentance becomes a source of spiritual pride for us. Our salvation then is won by a good moral act that we've undertaken. We were smart enough to see the truth. We were spiritual enough to see the light. That's not the case. God calls us out. He says, come out of there. And then we repent. So first, repentance is preceded by God's mercy. Second, repentance necessarily involves confession of our sin. Look at verse 3 in Psalm 51. David writes, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight. It's important to note that repentance necessarily involves confession of our sin, because what we do is we often ignore and minimize and justify our sin. In fact, I'd say that's always what we do in response to sin initially. David had sinned against Bathsheba. David had sinned against Uriah. David had sinned against the baby that was conceived as a result of this act of sexual violence. David sinned against the entire nation of Israel for whom he was responsible to lead and shepherd as the God-appointed king. Why does David say, God, it's against you only that I've sinned? Clearly it was not. Clearly he sinned against everybody. He's speaking in hyperbole. And it's because he sees clearly here the holiness of God the perfect uprightness of God, the total purity of God. And once he sees God's holiness, he becomes painfully aware of his creatureliness. And he sees and feels the depth of his sin. And so he recognizes that most foundationally, most primarily, his sin is against God, the creator of all things. So I've, I've used before the, the illustration that if you were from a rural area and then you drove into, say, downtown Tulsa, Oklahoma, Midwestern town of 400,000 people, it's got several tall buildings downtown. You would see four or five buildings rising above 30, 40 stories. And you might say, wow, that's a big city, bigger than anything I've seen. And then if you, drove, if you drove eight hours south of there and came down Highway 45 into downtown Houston, you would see a city that's 10 times the size of Tulsa. And you'd go, oh, yeah, Tulsa's actually not that big. Houston's big. That's a big city. And then if you traveled from Houston to a global big city like Hong Kong or, or New York City, you would see a city that's 10 or 20 or 30 times the size of, of Houston in, in, the, in the skyline. And you go, oh, actually, yeah, Houston's not big. I thought Houston was big. It's small. And Tulsa, which I once thought was big, is now tiny. And what was big is now tiny. And what was big is now medium. And now I see what's true. And I have a sense of perspective. It's the same thing here. Once we see the holiness of God, clearly we recognize our sin and we see just how dark it really is. And even the most minor point of sin we see is total treason against the king of the universe. Now remember King Saul, who came before King David. Saul similarly was confronted with his sin. But do you remember Saul's response? It wasn't to confess. It was to do what you and I do. To get defensive, to justify, to explain to rationalize. No, no, no. Given the context, what I've done is actually okay. You're misunderstanding what I've said. You're misattributing motives to me that aren't really there to explain the sin rather than confess the sin. And it led to his downfall. 
when we refuse to deal with our sin forthrightly, to admit, confess, and repent of it, at least two things happen. First, we move into a life of absurdity. And secondly, it costs us dearly. Uh, did you ever see the movie uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail? Okay, so slapstick, farcical British comedy, mid-70s. Um, I, I hope many of you have seen it because I don't have the comedy chops to really do this and I, I can't do a British accent. But there's a scene in that movie where King Arthur is galloping through the woods, not galloping on a horse, just him galloping. And he's got a helper behind him clacking coconut shells to make it sound like there's a horse. And, and he gets to a bridge and there's a, a knight there, all in black armor. He's foreboding and ominous looking. King Arthur says, Black Knight, your bravery is renowned through all the land, and I'm recruiting knights for my round table, and I want to ask that you would join us. And essentially, the, the knight refuses and says, Moreover, King Arthur, you can't cross this bridge because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill you. And so King Arthur has to fight his way across the bridge, and so they begin this sword fight, and the movie's got like these, you know, orchestral strings coming in really harsh to build suspense to the moment, and they start this choreographed sword fight, and then all of a sudden, King Arthur hits the black knight on the shoulder and the arm just falls off. It just like flops on the ground in just sort of an absurd way. And King Arthur says, you fought bravely, knight, now step aside. And, and the black knight refuses and he says, that's just a scratch. And King Arthur says, no, you lost your arm. And the knight says, no, I haven't. And he goes, well, what's that on the ground? And, he, and the camera pans on the arm and he goes, it's tis merely a flesh wound. And so they continue fighting. And then a moment later, King Arthur hits the other arm. And then the second arm falls off. Now the, the knight has no arms and he can't hold a sword. And you see, you see King Arthur bow and he's sort of praying thanks to God for victory. And then you see this, this black uh, armored foot slowly come into the picture and just kick him over. And he stands up and you see now the black knight is like dancing around with no arms. And Arthur says, what are you doing? You have no arms. And the knight says, yes, I do. And he goes, well, what are those? And he points to the ground. And there's two arms lying there. And it's just totally ridiculous. And, and so the, the black knight refuses to yield. He's trying to kick Arthur into submission. Arthur ultimately takes both of his legs off. Finally, he has no arms, no legs. And the black knight says, okay, we'll call it a draw. <laughs> That's what we look like when we refuse to deal with our sin forthrightly. When we refuse to confess our sin, we are losing limbs and pretending like everything is fine, like we're still in the fight. The black knight says, the black knight never loses, as he literally has no limbs remaining. That's what we look like. Just absurd. And it's costing us. Listen, if you're in Christ and you are harboring sin and you are not confessing it and repenting of it, you may not perish, but you're losing your limbs. It's costing you. And moreover, it's costing people around you. The effect of your sin isn't cabined to just your own life. And here's, here's the reality today. I know in a church this size, there are, there are people in here who are harboring and hiding sin, thinking that it's in this dark secret place because no one else knows about it yet. And just refusing to deal with it, refusing to confess it, refusing to repent of it. Friend, if that's you, your life is moving into absurdity and it is costing you. And so we see that repentance necessarily involves the confession of sin. When we ignore, deny, minimize our sin, whether we're confronted with it directly as David and Saul were and refuse to respond, or if we're just harboring it. 
It's not for God's glory and it's not for our good. And so the best thing that we can do is bring it into the healing light of God, confess it and deal with it. So first, repentance is preceded by God's mercy. And secondly, repentance requires confession of sin. And then third, repentance means turning from sin and to Christ. It's important to note that repentance means turning from sin and to Christ because often what we do is we will just merely feel sad about our sin or guilty about our sin and we don't actually abandon our sin. It would be like if you went into the doctor and the doctor said, I have bad news. I'm having to diagnose you with cancer. But the good news is it's early stage and it's treatable. If your response to that was simply to be sad and simply to mourn the diagnosis and not undertake the remediation, not undertake a plan of treatment, that would be a suboptimal response. That would not be for your good to just be sad about it and not to treat it. Listen to what John Owen said. John Owen was a, a Puritan author. He says, do you mortify sin? The word mortify means to put to death. Do you mortify sin? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Always be killing sin or it will be killing you. Friends, some of us here are daily giving ourselves to excellence in our work, daily giving ourselves to exercise, daily giving ourselves to hobby. Are you daily giving yourself to mortifying sin? If not, it's killing you. I recently read about a guy named Ignaz Samelweis. Samelweis was a Hungarian physician in the 19th century, and he worked in hospitals where they had maternity wards. Across Europe at this time, the uh, maternal death rate in maternity hospitals was about 20%. So for one of every five women who went in to deliver a baby in a hospital, that one would, would never leave. They, she would just perish there. And it was due to what they called childbed fever. It was an infection, and they didn't really know what caused it. And so Semmelweis had this epiphany. And he said, you know what we're doing as doctors? We're going in the morning, and we're performing autopsies on corpses. And then we'll go and treat an infected patient. And then seamlessly, we'll move into the maternity ward and deliver babies. And they didn't have gloves at this time, and they didn't even wash their hands. And so he hypothesized, what if we're actually carrying bad things from the sick and dead to those who are healthy? And so he said, what if we wash our hands? And so in his ward, he began implementing a practice of hand washing. And immediately, the maternal death rate went from over 20% to under 1%. And yet somehow, the medical community in Europe for years and years refused to acknowledge the correctness of his hypothesis. They refused to implement hand washing, a hotly debated topic. And folks just wouldn't believe that his data was accurate. And so tragically, for years thereafter, women continued to die unnecessarily in childbirth simply because doctors refused to wash their hands. And then ironically, in 1865, Samuel was doing a, he was performing a surgery didn't have gloves still. He had a cut on his hand, went in to perform the surgery, bacteria from the sick, deeply embedded into his wound. He wasn't able to quickly enough or, or sufficiently wash out the, the germs, and he succumbed to the same infection, childbed fever. And so somehow, this pioneer in the field of antiseptic hand washing died of unclean hands. Do you mortify sin? You're either killing sin or it's killing you. The Bible speaks really seriously about this. Listen to James 4. 
This is a hard word. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. Psalm 24, here's what the psalmist asks. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Titus 3, verse 4 and 5. We read it earlier. Do you remember what the operative verb in that passage was? It says, the goodness and loving kindness of God, not based on our righteousness, he saves us by the washing of regeneration and renewal. By the washing. The Bible is very clear. We have a problem. The problem is sin. We have unclean hands. We have unclean hearts. What's the cure for this? There's only one. And so in Psalm 51 verse 7, here's what David says. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. David is acknowledging the problem. And he calls out to be purged with hyssop. What does that mean? Recall that hyssop is a, is a plant. It looks like, kind of like sagebrush. And we see it seven times in the Bible. Most importantly, we see it in the Exodus. So uh, the nation of Egypt has been enslaving Israel and God is in the midst of delivering Israel. And God starts sending judgments into Egypt as part of, the, as part of uh, Israel's liberation. And so he says, this night I'm going to send my spirit through the land. I'm, I'm going to kill the firstborn of every family. But you, Israel, the people of God, my children, here's what you're going to do. You're going to take a hyssop branch. You're going to dip it in the blood of an innocent lamb. You're going to put it over your doorposts. On, on the threshold of your door. And then as my spirit moves through the land, I will pass over your home and spare your child. And then we see it again in John 19, this time at the cross. Jesus hanging on the cross in the midst of his crucifixion, dying for our sin so that the righteousness and wrath of God might be satisfied in him rather than upon us. And Jesus says he's thirsty. And so a Roman centurion who's there attending to the crucifixion picks up a sponge, soaks it with sour wine, puts it on a hyssop branch, holds it up to Jesus' lips for him to drink. And so in Exodus, we see the blood of an innocent lamb at the end of hyssop, which is securing for God's people forgiveness from sin. And then at the cross, we see again the blood of an innocent lamb, Jesus himself at the end of a hyssop branch, securing for God's people the forgiveness of God. What's the cure for our unclean hands and our uncure heart? Only our unclean heart, there's only one, and it's the blood of Christ spilled for us so that we would not have to absorb the wrath of God justly because of our sin. To walk in step with the Spirit of God, we have to live with a rhythm of repentance, not ignoring or minimizing our sin, not presuming upon God's grace, but rather responding fully to God's grace through repentance. This is a regular rhythm of renewing our minds and reorienting our steps. Living in a rhythm of repentance is living in a rhythm of grace. Because grace always precedes repentance and grace always follows repentance. Do you want to experience more of God's grace in your life? Do you want to experience it? Do you want to taste it? Do you want it to be the beat that you live by, the rhythm by which you walk? If you want to live in the grace of God, live in a rhythm of repentance. You don't want to go to Springfield, Illinois. There's nothing there for you. That's not where you're headed. If you're from Springfield, listen, it's probably a great place. But in this metaphor, you're not headed to Springfield. You need to turn around. You need to reorient your steps, change your thinking. You're going the wrong direction. God's kindness and his grace is beckoning us to repent. Just live in a rhythm of repentance and a rhythm of grace. And here's the great promise for us 
1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that promise is true today for you and for me. Now, as we make, if you've never made a confession of sin before in your life, if you've never confessed your need for Christ, let this morning be the morning that you respond to God's grace. And if you've made that confession prior, then walk in the, in the grace of God today. This is a primary means by which we incorporate the grace of God actively into our lives. This is how we actively live into the grace of God. When I was first married, probably two months into marriage, 22 years old, had a new bride, and I started having these dreams. And they were illicit dreams of someone specific who was not my wife. And every night, for 10 nights, I had the same exact dream, same person, same dream, same sequence, and I was wrecked by it. I, was, I felt so guilty. I felt so much shame. I could hardly even look at my, we would get in bed at night, I could hardly even look at my wife because I knew what was coming. Or in the morning, I, I knew the images that were in my head. And I just, I couldn't, I couldn't deal with it. I couldn't get past it. And so I finally decided I, have to, I just have to tell my wife. This is going to be really hard for her to hear, but I have to tell her. And so one night before we went to sleep, I, I told her, I said, listen, for the last many nights, I've been having this dream and I hate it and I don't want it and I want to be rid of it. Would you pray for me? And so there that night, we prayed together in bed. She prayed for me with so much grace and, and compassion. And that night, for the first time in 10 days, I did not have the dream. And now 14 years later, I've never had the dream again. And I share that because it's an example and a reminder of God's grace to us. Confession is hard. It's not fun. Repentance is difficult. You know what it's for? It's for our freedom. It's for our liberty. It's for our joy. Um, we don't have to go into a confessional booth and confess to a priest for our sins to be forgiven. Because of what Jesus has done, we have direct access to God himself and we can pray directly and we can confess our sin to him and we can be sure that if we confess our sin and believe in our hearts that Christ is raised from the dead and he died for sin, then we know that we can have confidence in God's forgiveness. But also God's given us community as a grace. And when we confess our sins to one another, it brings about light into our life and the light that comes into our life actually makes it harder for the sin to survive. So I mentioned earlier the Book of Common Prayer. If you come from that kind of tradition, this might be familiar to you. If you don't, we're going to do something here that's a, a little bit different. We're going to actually do the general confession together. And we're going to corporately confess together. And we're going to confess our sin and we're going to receive a reminder of God's mercy. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask if you would stand with me. In a moment, I'm going to invite us to confess. Before we recite the confession together, we're going to have just a few moments of silence and reflection. And then we'll say the confession together. When you see the words on the screen, and I'll be saying them, just go ahead and read those with me. I'll remind us of our forgiveness. I'll pray, and then we will do communion as we do. So, let us humbly confess our sins unto Almighty God. And now a moment of silence and ask the Lord, what is he inviting you to repent of today?
and now together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done, by what we have left undone, we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry. We humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord grant us absolution and remission of all our sins, true repentance, amendment of life, and the grace and consolation of his Holy Spirit. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for so graciously and mercifully loving us and allowing us sinners with unclean hands to come directly into your presence because of the work of Jesus. Thank you for the grace and kindness of inviting us to confess our sin. Father, we are inadequate in and of ourselves. We have sinned, we have committed treason, we are incapable of living the lives that we want and the lives that we ought. And so God, thank you for your great love for us, that you pursued us, that you sent Christ to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus, thank you for all you did on the cross to make possible our freedom, our forgiveness, and our relationship with God our Father. And Holy Spirit, thank you for working in us this great salvation and whispering to us even now a reminder that we are, if we have confessed our sin and embraced Jesus as our Lord, that we are sons and daughters, secure in our salvation, and forever held by the love of God. We thank you for these things. In Jesus' name.